Welcome to Agriculture in North Carolina. Hello, farmers and friends. I'm Dan Miller. This program is all about the largest industry in our state, and that's agriculture. A couple of weeks ago, Eric Edwards joined us to chat about carbon markets and carbon credits. Eric is an associate professor at NC State in the Department of Ag and Resource Economics. Following our carbon discussions, and not for broadcast because, quite frankly, we ran out of time, I asked him about two ag-related water stories I'd been following. Eric has written a number of papers about water rights. And on the hemp market in North Carolina as well. His answers, very interesting. So I wanted the conversation to get on a show. That is today's show. You could call it leftovers, but if you're like me, you find the meals following Thanksgiving more tasty than the actual feast because I was too busy chatting with everybody to give the food its full appreciation. Ag and NC is made possible by Ag Carolina Farm Credit. First Choice Insurance Partners, the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, got to be NC. Find links to those folks on our website, agandnc.com. Now a quick venture to Duplin County as we hook up with the headlines in Jeff Turner, COO of Murphy Family Ventures and member of the North Carolina Board of Ag and co-host of this here program. Jeff, how the world treating you? Hey, I'm doing well. I hope you are, Dan. I am. I'm settling into the uh, the fall routine, uh, waking up with the sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> I swear. You know, I really wished, as I've said many times, do one or the other, but this back and forth it is very unsettling. Now, I've got to go with it's got to stay at daylight savings time. Well, just let's just go the whole year round with that. I I don't think I could hang with uh, Eastern Standard. The sun would be up at like 445 in the middle of summer. Although there was a time that I work in dairy and uh, we moved 10 minutes uh, every couple of days until we finally caught that hour back up so we could get back to uh, get up at a reasonable order. The cows weren't uh, down with changing. There was no setting on them to make them automatically move forward. <laughs> Couldn't set the clock back up. Huh? No, no, sir. They were similar to the old VCRs. They were flashing for several days. <laughs> there you go. Long-term demands for dairy indicate things have changed a little bit. There's a higher want for butter, cheese, and other full-fat dairy foods. Analysts say that it will continue to grow over the next couple of years. U.S. consumers have shifted away from margarine and reduced-fat dairy foods. The last decade as nutritional science around saturated fats have evolved. United States dairy actually exports more low-fat, skim-solid products, and we actually are importing high-butter-fat products. Makes all the sense in the world to me. I'd rather eat less and eat tastier food. You've also got all these folks who want unpasteurized milk for their babies. Hmm. And for the life of me, I can't understand that. After all the years and all the problems and all of a sudden – this gentleman, Louis Pasteur, comes along and we learn how to pasteurize milk to take all the bacteria away to make it safer. And now you have this, used to we'd call it the Pepsi generation. I don't know what you'd call them today. All these up and coming new parents, for whatever reason, want unpasteurized milk for their babies. Now, help me understand that. Having grown up on unpasteurized milk, for the most part, from the farm, non-homogenized or pasteurized milk. By the way, when I was younger, I thought the process of pasteurization had to do with taking it from the pasture somehow and purifying it. I didn't know there was a man named that, at least past my middle teens when I was working on the farm. You lived a sheltered life, I'd say. I did. I did. <laughs> you know, one thing that has changed, what we had is AI, different thing back in the day, artificial insemination. One thing now is genomic testing, 
So they can test cows to reveal 70% of the genetic ability for a young cow to give high butterfat milk in the years to come when the heifer turns into a cow. Amazing. It really is. You know, I, I don't know this to be true, but I would assume that that's some of the turn on for the reason for high butter fat breeds such as Jersey and Guernsey over certainly Holstein is, is uh, the prevalent breed in America. All of the new technology today just allows a farmer, if it's a dairyman or whoever, whatever it is, that can make better decisions about the outcome. Things have come an awful long way in just a few short years. Here's a subject that pops up from time to time, and we think that the world attacks the United States, but not just the United States, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, the ICBC. Their U.S. arm was hit by a ransomware attack late last week, affected their trades with the Treasury Department. IBC financial officials say the U.S. unit of China's largest commercial lender by assets was investigating the attack, and they're trying to get things back online to recover from it. Just a reminder, back up, back up. Think it was the Russians? Well, you got to blame it on somebody. My <laughs> guess is they'll blame it on us. Yeah. But <laughs> if I were betting. Yeah. Question for you that um, I read about this, but I don't think my understanding is full, and uh, we can share it with listeners. Maybe you can give us a little detail. Here's the setup. A unanimous panel of the State Court of Appeals in North Carolina ruled in favor of the North Carolina Farm Bureau Federation against the State Department of Environmental Quality in a dispute over animal waste permits. Appellate judges agreed last week with the Farm Bureau that three conditions tied to general animal waste permits adopted in 2019. None of the three conditions proceeded through the state's official rulemaking process in the Administrative Procedures Act. All of the conditions then are invalid. Jeff, can you make sense of this for me? Sure. It's real simple. It's called sue and settle. Ever so often, these general permits come up for renewal, and they are reviewed for renewal, and if changes need to occur, whatever they can occur. So several years ago, I guess under Roy Cooper first term, a group sued the Department of Environmental Quality and said that they needed to add additional conditions to the permit. From that suit, the buzzword is we brought in all of the stakeholders and we added these conditions to the permit. Well, one thing was wrong with that. The stakeholders probably would include the people who was going to get the permit and operate. They were not invited to the meeting. They agreed to add these three conditions and did not go through the proper rulemaking process. And so what happened Farm Bureau, along with a lot of other folks, in fact, the North Carolina Department of Agriculture fired an amicus brief again in support of the Farm Bureau position that proper rulemaking had not taken place. And so the administrative law judge agreed. It got appealed to Superior Court. Superior Court said, no, they did it all right. So eventually it's made its way to Court of Appeals at this particular point, and obviously uh, the ruling came back and said that those three additional conditions w- were not valid and that they did not go through the process. So that's kind of the Cliff Notes version of what's taken place over the last several years. On today's program, well, Jeff, every now and then when we have a guest on, we get to chatting and we overshoot what I call the runway, which is we run out of time. And that happened a few weeks back when we talked to Eric Edwards. We originally invited him on to talk about carbon credits, and that program aired a couple weeks back. But we went on to talk about other subjects, and that's the subject of our program today. Yeah, Eric was a a good interview, and 
uh, very knowledgeable of, of carbon credits and the like. So this should be good. You're listening to Agriculture in North Carolina. Thanks to the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to BNC, North Carolina's official business development and marketing program for agriculture. More than agriculture, it's gottobnc.com. Eric Edwards is an associate professor at NC State in the Department of Ag and Resource Economics. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Eric was on to talk about carbon markets, in which he's written about extensively, but he's also written about water rights. So I couldn't resist asking a couple of questions on headlines I've been recently following. Out in Arizona, the Saudi government actually has some farms, does an extensive amount of watering. I actually looked at them on Google Maps. It's pretty easy to identify them because it's the only green area along uh, within, you know, a couple of miles of the of the, uh, the Colorado River. State of Arizona is shut, shutting down one of the farms. They're not pulling for the river, but they're actually pulling from aquifers. Are we going to see more of that, and what gives them the right to do that? This is a really complicated question. In general, the, the issue with, with these large farms in Arizona is similar to issues across the West and actually throughout the world where groundwater lies in this aquifer underground. There's overlying land ownership, but no one owns the water underground. It basically becomes a race to who can get at it first. Uh, in Arizona, the particular issue is that a lot of these very large farms, some of them may be foreign-owned, dug their wells deeper than the surrounding areas, domestic wells, and they've pumped the water and they've drawn down the aquifer level, and so some wells are going dry. In general, there is no set way that that's regulated, right? Throughout the western U.S., in North Carolina even, there's not really a set regulation for how much water you're allowed to pump from your from your well. So how then can a state shut someone down for pumping? Well, California offers a good example. There's been recent legislation to say these, each basin has to create a sustainable, meaning as much water is coming in as going out, right, plan for extracting water. If they don't, then the state can come in and start forcing people to reduce their pumping. The property right aspects of that are very unclear. If you've been pumping water for a number of years and you're using it to irrigate agriculture, at what point is that considered a property right that's protected under the U.S. Constitution? Still a very open question. Or is that a permit that the state has issued to you? And it varies depending on the states and the language. But I think it's a, it's a very interesting question and under what authority and whether Arizona will be able to ultimately prevail in shutting down these pumpers, I don't know. As we grow in population, for instance, in North Carolina, the, the water rights question will eventually have to be addressed. Yeah, I, I think yes, and there's sort of a big dual set of systems in the U.S. East of the 100th meridian in the, in the humid area of the U.S., we have something that's known as the riparian doctrine, which means everyone that has land that's touching river or if you're overlying an aquifer, you can just use that water, and there's not really any additional constraints on your use other than kind of use it in a way that's proportional to allow other people on the on the river to use it as well. In the Western U.S., we have what's known as the prior appropriation doctrine, which is also referred to as first-in-time, first-in-right. And this is where the states issue water rights to individual landowners, whether they're near a river or far away, based on the order in which they 
say they want the water. So if I came in in 1880 and said I want to divert the water to my farm that's two miles away and I built a canal, then I have a water right that whose seniority exceeds everyone who came earlier, right? So that seniority doctrine allows secure investment in infrastructure to create agriculture, right? In North Carolina, we don't have that. Generally, we've had plenty of water over time, so it hasn't been an issue, but there could come a time, and there certainly is sort of these evolving, you know, production and investment decisions in irrigation in the state, especially as we get longer droughts in certain years, that create an overuse of of those water resources without an allocation system, you don't have the security to know I'll have water, X amount of water in this year to irrigate my crops. And so you may not invest in an irrigation system that you otherwise would. Are we likely to see Western states leading the, the trail in this and uh, making its way to the Supreme Court by some landmark case? Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of controversy and disputes in the Western U.S. right now over water, especially associated with the Colorado River. States fighting states for water. You've seen that sort of scarcity issue emerge in the eastern United States as well, especially in the, there was a Supreme Court case between Georgia and Florida over water allocation. In the western U.S., all those decisions are in some sense governed by this prior appropriation doctrine and this allocation rule. And in the eastern U.S., we don't have that. So there will continue to be these disputes as long as there is scarcity talked about the Colorado. Let's talk about the Mississippi. And, and are you watching for the moment drought in the middle portion of America? The Mississippi River levels are low. We're seeing more brackish water make its way up the Mississippi River, which is drastically affecting a lot of the communities. Yeah. So this is this is a an interesting question and one super relevant to North Carolina. So sort of the, the brackish or salt water is kind of held at bay. Uh, especially in these flat regions like the Mississippi Delta or eastern North Carolina, is kind of held at bay by the, the fresh water that's flowing out of the rivers and in the groundwater system. So when you get a drought or you get sea level rise or a big storm or something like that, kind of equilibrium is, is offset and the salt water or brackish water starts to move move in. So an example of this, you know, in, in Hyde County, which is generally not more than about 10 feet above sea level throughout the county. They've had big issues with this and actually put in things like dikes and tide gates, which allow fresh water to move out when that water is high, but close and prevent salt water or brackish water from moving up the areas as um, when fresh water is low or when the, the seawater gets high. In the Mississippi, it's such a large system and, the, you know, you get a big drought. I just don't think there's been preparation for this sort of eventuality. And this is going to be a ongoing problem, you know, in the Mississippi, but also in eastern North Carolina, as some of our more productive farmland is at risk of what we call saltwater intrusion or sea level rise, a swizzler. Practices that you can you can undertake to prevent that all require planning and investment. It's really hard to deal with it as it's happening. It kind of has to be dealt with ahead of time. Just a, a comment. We do report water uses usage for agriculture to the North Carolina Department of Agriculture once a year, best I recall. At least hog farmers are doing that, this, this, and I think maybe poultry as well. There's already beginning to be a kind of a, a monitoring of water usage and needs that's established that's out there, at least 
the beginning of it so that there's some sort of a record of what, you know, what are we using? It's driven by just what, what you just mentioned. I think that there's been like saltwater intrusion as far west as uh, Lenore Peak County uh, in that area in the past. And a lot of that, I think, is because we're depleting. If you think about the amount of growth that's taken place uh, in the middle part of our state, the amount of well water that's being used, uh, I'm making it a statement, but I, I think it's a question. I think what happens is as we deplete that water, it offers more opportunity for the saltwater intrusion to come come from east to west. Is that a fair comment or statement? I think that's a, a fair assessment of what is potentially happening this area is just starting to be studied. Uh, I'm actually part of a group that's being led by Duke University, but there's a variety of people along the eastern seaboard that are looking at this exact issue and understanding where and when the saltwater has moved from the east to the west, how far it's gotten. The description you have, I have seen studies kind of around the Chesapeake that say exactly that. The freshwater kind of holds the saltwater at bay, and as you deplete that freshwater with groundwater pumping, you get saltwater intrusion. Doing a great study. I was just using common, oh, Jeff Turner, common logic. You, Farm boy logic. You, you, yeah, if you if you pump it out, you create space, and it's right. going to be filled by something. So. This seems like as good a place as any to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment, but a reminder, our program is brought to you in part by Donna Byram with First Choice Insurance Partners. You can call Donna today, 252-792-1189. Let her protect your yield so you can stay in the field. Tana Byram loves her farmers. This is Ag and NC on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. I'm Dan Miller along with Jeff Turner. We're joined by Eric Edwards, Associate Professor at NC State University, a man who wears many research hats. A year ago, two years ago, everybody was seeing... Hemp is the is is a new potential cash crop in 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 North Carolina, and farmers have a bunch of hemp. They'd love to sell you that that they were storing for quite some time. It didn't turn out to to be that. You've written papers on this. What has to happen for that to actually turn out to be something for that the farmer uh, can make use of? This is an interesting, really interesting question with a, you know a lot of details that I only got into a little bit. There's kind of two markets for hemp. There's fiber hemp used for clothes, Patagonia would buy it to make, you know, sustainable fabrics. And then there's hemp oil. This would turn into, like, the CBD oil. And they're entirely different plants, and they're cultivated differently. Big boom and bust in the hemp oil market. There's still a lot of interest in the fiber market. And the fiber market is, there's a lot of interest because hemp has a lot of properties. It's low water. It's supposed to be more environmentally friendly, and there's a lot of demand supposedly from big, you know, sort of textile producers to use this sort of product. There's some good folks uh, on the plant science side at NC State working on this. Because hemp was illegal for a long time, you couldn't, you couldn't really grow it, we sort of lost the understanding of what varieties would do really well in North Carolina. So there's still a lot of basic science to be done to get that, to get that hemp growing. Fiber hemp also requires a lot of processing. And so even if we have a few growers who are, who are working on it, there needs to be that, that sort of economies of scale. We need to get enough hemp growing in the state so that all the different levels of production to basically turn it from what is essentially a plant that, that kind of grows like hay into really refined fiber that can go into, into textiles. 
those two issues, this kind of organizational or, or scale issue and then the crop varietal issue are, are the two major roadblocks to hemp right now. What am I to do with all this hemp I got stored? <laughs> <laughs> when I looked at this, which was over a year ago, I think there were one or maybe two folks in the state who could who could process it, but that's a real bottleneck. I've even heard of people shipping it out of state to get processed, but of course, very expensive. So I think that, that's a real challenge. Eric Edwards, Associate Professor at NC State University in the Agriculture and Resource Economics Department. Coming up in just a moment, a quick look at the commodity numbers week over week as Ag and NC continues. Thanks to April and BG at the Farmer's Connection. If you've not put a copy of the Farmer's Connection in your hands, I highly recommend it. Farmer's Connection is a newsprint magazine with information and ads from dealers and suppliers right here in North Carolina. You'll find equipment prices and information from dealers like Mark Chesson and Sons in Williamston, Caps Trailer in Dover, Southern Equipment in Goldsboro and Williamston, and Premier Equipment in Rocky Mount, Enfield, Washington, and Aden. Looking at commodity prices week over week, December live cattle futures fell $9.70 to close at $174.17 and a half and hit a five-month low. January feeder cattle futures lost $13.32 and a half to close Friday at $226.42 and a half and hit a seven-month low early on in the day. The cattle futures market went off the rails last week, producing serious near-term technical damage to suggest more chart-selling pressure from speculators this week. December live hogs rallied 15 cents in the week to close at 71.90. Research and strength in the wholesale market led strength over to the futures market. North Carolina egg prices were higher on all sizes when compared to the prior week. North Carolina weighted average price quoted Thursday, November 9th, for small lot sales of delivered carton grade A eggs was 204.74 for extra large eggs, 197.80 for large, 178.31 for medium, and 122 for small eggs. I don't have grain prices from last week. Still working on that staffing issue at the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. Commissioner Troxler looking for folks. Check the website to find out if there's a job there for you. And that's this week's Agriculture in North Carolina. Subscribe to our longer free podcast version on Apple or Spotify or the IBX Media app. Details on all that and links to our sponsors on our website, agandnc.com. Thanks to Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Choice Insurance Partners, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, got to be NC. Ag and NC Copyright 2023 Interbanks Media. For Jeff Turner, myself, Dan Miller, make it a great week.